Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. Want to let you know if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And we want to let you know, no matter what walk of life you are from, no matter what way of thinking or what you share here or debate here at Modern Day Debate, we hope you feel welcome. And with that, what we're going to do is... I want to give you a couple of housekeeping type things for the channel first. If it is your first time here and you have not subscribed, well, consider hitting that subscribe button as we are thrilled for many upcoming juicy debates in the future, including Matt Dillahunty will be back to debate whether or not Jesus fulfilled prophecy. So that should be a blast that's coming up this month with Samuel Nassan, and you don't want to miss it. Also, very excited, folks. What we're going to do is introduce our guests. We're thrilled to have them. We're really thankful they're here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Want to let you know, folks, their links are in the top of the description. So if you're listening and you're like, hmm, I like that, and you want to hear more, you can hear more by clicking on those links in the description box. In fact, what we're going to do is for our speakers, we're thrilled to have them here. We're going to give them a chance to share. We want to hear what you basically what we could expect to find at your links, gentlemen. So we'll start with Ben. Glad to have you back, Ben. What can people expect to find at your link in the description? Uh, yeah, so they can uh, they can find the uh, YouTube channel and podcast that I host. Uh, give them an argument, uh, and if you've got the BenBurgess.com there, you can also find the Jacobin articles and a bunch of other stuff. You got it. Thanks so much, and Breton. Glad to have you back as well. What can people expect to find at your link? Sure. Uh, so my name is Brenton Lengel. Uh, I am a playwright, uh, uh, co political commentator, and uh, the author of Snow White Zombie Apocalypse, uh, the comic series, uh, Ringo nominated. Um, it, at my link, you're going to find my channel where we talk about arts, philosophy, radical politics, uh, and Buddhism. And uh, also for those of you who are interested in the comic series of Snow White Zombie, uh, we are just about to go into final Kickstarter fulfillment for issue number three. So if you want to jump on there, uh, there's a link for hosted pre-orders you can find on my uh, website, brentonlengel.com. And uh, also check my uh, YouTube channel and you can grab one of the issues uh, before, um, before they go to print. So that's really exciting. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Brenton. And... With that, we'll kick it over to the team that is arguing that socialism cannot innovate. So we'll start with Keith. Glad to have you, Keith. What can people expect to find at your link? Uh, there's a website that I'm the chief editor of called attackthesystem.com. And it's a general news and commentary site that uh, presents ideas from a, what might be called a heterodox anarchist perspective. Um, and I'm also the co-host of a podcast called Kick the Puppy. You got it. We're thrilled to have you here, Keith. And Todd, glad to have you with us. What can people expect to find at your link? You can find me at the, uh, uh, I'm searching in the YouTube uh, search engine, uh, Praise of Folly podcast. And you can expect to hear talks about religion, history, politics, philosophy, and economics. You got it. 
Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. And what we're going to do for today's format, just want to let you know, folks, it's going to be interweaved in terms of the opening statements. And so we'll start with Ben, and then we will kick it over to the opposite team, where Todd will have roughly seven minutes as well. And then we'll go to Brenton for about seven minutes as well. And then finally, Keith for about seven minutes. So we will jump into that shortly, but want to let you know, following those openings, we'll have open conversation. And then Q&A. So if you happen to have a question, feel free to tag me in the live chat with at Modern Day Debate. That way, I can be sure to see your question and get it into that Q&A list. For that Q&A part, it'll be about 30 minutes or so. And with that, we are ready to start the opening statement. So, Ben, the floor is all yours. I've got the timer set for you. Thanks for being here. All right. Thank you, James. Uh, so if you're going to ask uh, whether socialism can innovate, the obvious first question is, uh, what do you mean by socialism? Uh, so I think broadly speaking, uh, what we mean by socialism is no longer having society being divided into a class of people who own businesses, a capitalist class, and a class of people uh, who work for the first class, uh, the working class. Uh, that instead of that, there's some important sense in which uh, the means of production, distribution, exchange, finance, all that good stuff uh, are, you know, the economic resources of the society are socially owned. Uh, so if the, uh, if the claim that the other side wants to make is there are some versions of socialism or there are some things that having that be socially owned mean that might, that might be bad for technological innovation, then yeah, sure. Uh, I, I have no, you know, I have no problem with that. Of course, there are some ways that capitalism could work uh, that would be bad for technological innovation. Arguably, for example, if you did what a lot of anarcho-capitalists want and abolished all intellectual property protections, then the uh, then the incentives that uh, uh, the incentives <coughs> that companies have uh, to uh, you know to for you know certain kinds of innovations to increase market share uh, might go away. Uh, would things work out that way? I don't know. It's speculative, and now you see the problem. So, uh, so let's talk about what we mean. Uh, we talk about socialism, uh, and the first thing to make clear is that certainly what I mean when I talk about socialism is not primarily the sort of experiments and authoritarian state planning that existed in the uh, in uh, the 20th century uh, in places like the Soviet Union and Mao's China. Uh, if you want to talk about the actual technological record of those societies, it's a mixed bag. Uh, Soviet Union did beat us to space. Uh, but uh, I'm not primarily interested in exploring the question of uh, whether, you know, innovation, you know, to what extent it was happening in those societies, uh, because whereas it's a fascinating question for historians of those societies, that's not the model that I advocate. Uh, so... On the other end of the spectrum, you could talk about the optimistic projection, most optimistic possible projection of how socialism could work, uh, you know, what the kids call uh, fully automated luxury communism, uh, where the idea there is that as uh, if, as even many libertarian futurists believe, uh, technological progress is eventually going to get us to the point where most of the work that's currently done by humans can be done by machines. Uh, well, if you think that prediction is right, and of course there's lots of room for debate about that, but if those machines are still privately owned, the results could be a disaster for most of the human race. Uh, the best we could hope for is like Yang Bucks as a 21st century equivalent of an ancient Roman bread ration. Uh, but if the machines are collectively owned, uh, then we could all make a collective democratic decision to just work fewer hours with no loss in standard of living. 
And maybe the idea is, uh, this is an idea that goes back to like Karl Marx and his fragment on machines from Gundrisa, uh, that uh, at the end point of that process, so little work still has to be done by humans that you don't need to link work to income in order for it to be done. Some people will choose to spend their free time playing video games and spending time with their family. Some people will write really bad poetry and some people will pursue their passion for computer engineering. Uh, and that will be enough to get the what work still needs to be done by humans done just as a hobbyist passion. Now, that's extremely optimistic. Will that actually happen? I have no idea. I think it's a useful horizon, either if we never completely get there. Uh, would technological progress grind to a halt once we got there? If we did, I doubt it, uh, because you have so many people who are potential technological innovators uh, who currently have to spend their lives uh, in you know working in fields or in Jeff Bezos' sweatshops uh, who would who would be freed up to make their contributions to society. Uh, but I will freely acknowledge that it's hard to make predictions with any great degree of certainty about how a society so unlike our own uh, would work if it came into existence. Uh, and uh, and I think it's a little bit more interesting to try to do something grounded, which is instead of just speculating about what a really advanced form of socialism might look like, to think about the kind of socialism we could have right now, five minutes after capitalism. Uh, so don't make any assumption about a bunch of technological progress having happened first or any sort of cultural progress having happened first. Just only assume massive, massive political progress. That's it, right? You know, that like, you know, assume a, uh, a political uh, tectonic shift uh, that would allow for the complete expropriation of the current owners of the means of production, but don't assume anything else. What could that look like? Well, uh, the sort of model that I've talked about, I have an article in Jacobin about this uh, called Capitalism Is It Working? But what would, uh, so, you know, what would effective socialism look like or something like that? Uh, working on a book about this, you could read Bhaskar Sankara's uh, Socialist Manifesto, the first chapter where it gets into this. But basically, uh, if you want to know how you could have a functioning society without a capitalist class, without this separate class of people owning but not working in the means of production, then you could just take elements that already exist in real life. Uh, so we already have uh, plenty of successful examples of advanced Western democracies uh, nationalizing certain industries uh, and uh, and running them uh, as uh, as public utilities in a completely decommodified way. Think, for example, the NHS in Britain, which is so wildly successful that even conservatives have to pretend to support it or they never win another election again. Uh, and uh, we already have successful private sector worker cooperatives. Uh, so, you know, most strikingly, for example, the Mondragon Corporation uh, in Spain. And so if you had a society where you no longer had a capitalist class, you no longer had a separate class of people owning but not working, you know, in the farms, the factories, the offices, the stores, et cetera, uh, because they, that had been gobbled up on the one hand by an expanded uh, state sector for what are sometimes called the commanding heights of the economy, for things we really want to be decommodified completely. In other words, we don't want to be treated as commodities to be bought and sold, such as healthcare. And on the other hand, uh, if you did still need to have a private sector to solve any sort of calculation problems, it could at least be a private sector or quasi-private sector if it was renting the physical means of production for the state of competing Democrat, internally democratic worker cooperatives. So finally, the question is, would such a society be able to innovate? Well, 
Here's the problem if you want to say no. We'd have two sectors here, a cooperative sector and a state sector, and both of those in the real world do innovate like crazy. Uh, so uh, the Mondragon Corporation uh, has, uh, you know, does lots of technological development. In fact, uh, companies like Microsoft and General Motors have partnered with them because they're so good at it. Uh, and uh, the state sector uh, does tons uh, of, uh, of innovation. Look at, uh, look at how much technological development happened, how quickly uh, as a, uh, you know, during, uh, during World War II, you know, we basically got atomic weapons and radar, you know, over the course of just a few years. Uh, the fact that we're doing this right now on the internet, uh, which was an invention of the state sector, uh, you know, from, uh, from DARPAnet. Uh, the fact that in our, all, our, all of our phones, we have GPS, you know, which is, again, was originally developed, uh, you know, by the state sector, strongly indicates that, yes, yes, it can. So if by innovation, we mean technological innovation, technological progress, then, yeah, the record's pretty clear. Uh, you know, if we oh, have a broader, sl- somewhat looser definition of innovation uh, that's that's about, like, just entrepreneurial creativity, then if you want to argue that the society being described could not have that, then I want that you need to explain what about market incentives is different in a market sector of worker cooperatives or a market sector of regular capitalist businesses, and good luck to you. Thank you very much. Ben, for that opening statement, we will kick it over to Todd. So kicking it over, over to the opposite team now for about seven minutes, roughly, as well. And so, Todd, the floor is all yours. All right. The labor theory of value is central to the economic analysis of socialism, especially with regards to the theory of exploitation. But does the LTV provide a solid basis for a comprehensive analysis of political economy? The main problem I see is that it cannot adequately account for intellectual products such as art and technological innovation. A central component of the LTV is socially necessary labor time, which can be defined as the amount of labor time performed by a worker of average skill and productivity working with tools of the average productive potential to produce a given commodity. This is an average unit unit labor cost measured in working hours. Whatever can be said for the SNLT with regards to mass-produced goods, it becomes very difficult to envision how the SNLT could account for singular works, such as technological innovation and artistic creativity, or broadly speaking, intellectual works. Such a work is a breakthrough, and breakthroughs by their nature do not have average cost of production. As such, this means intellectual products are outside of the valuation process of the LTV. If one cannot calculate the value of intellectual goods via the SNLT, then how in a socialist economy is such a good to be appraised? It would seem that any such appraisal would have to come from some other method of analysis, but therein lies the problem. The socialist claims that the LTV to be an exhaustive explanation of the political economy, which it is in fact not. Under the principle that that which is not valued or not properly valued will not be produced, I predict that under a socialist system which is governed by the LTV, such technological goods, such intellectual goods as technological innovation and artistic creations will either go underproduced or not produced at all. It would, uh, let's see here, not produced at all, as the means of production is not an intellectual good, if socialism is to be understood, the socialist claims the LTV to be an exhaustive explanation of the political economy, which in fact is not. Under the principle that that which is not valued 
or not properly valued should not be produced. I predicted under a socialist system, which is governed by the LTV, such intellectual goods as technological innovation and artistic creation will go underproduced and not produced at all. This critique is also applicable in a broader sense. If socialism is to be understood as the democratization, then we have the problem of diseconomies of scale. In a diseconomy of scale, for instance, each increase in production, there is an increased unit cost. For our purposes, an opportunity cost. Let's say you want to tell a story in two hours, all well and good, but what if two, three, or four in the same amount of time? You will have less time to devote to each story, making them all weaker than just one two-hour story. This leads to a scope problem. In a traditional society, you really only have one interest to consider in the context of creating art. A tiny aristocratic elite that more or less shares the same values across time and between nations. Think ancient Greece and medieval Europe. This allows for the specialization and focus. You only have to keep a small cohesive group satisfied, which allows for clear norms of method and message. If you have a democratic art scene, then you have two problems, the problem of genres and the problem of ideologies. In order to cast the widest possible net, you will have to include as many genres and ideologies as possible to get as many people as possible to take notice of your work. The problem being is that genres and ideologies are contradictory. Imagine a brooding psychological action film mashup or a thriller romantic comedy. It just won't work. If you leave out people's ideologies and they complain, why have you left me out? This wide casting of the net prevents people from having a prescribed method, form, and message, reducing the content to an incoherent mess with no message or structure. Thus, we see that the mission creep of democratic taste leads to a diseconomy of scale in the arts, which will in turn lead to an underproduction at best of quality art. If by democratizing the workplace to enfranchise those who own the means of production, what about those sectors of the economy where the producer need not own the means of production? For example, a theoretical mathematician, his job is to discover mathematical breakthroughs, but that job does not require ownership of capital. Since there is no SNLT account of a breakthrough, how could a theoretical mathematician in principle even be properly valued? If he cannot be compensated by some LTV calculation, how is he be compensated? Will he be compensated at all? What if he is compensated at a higher rate than workers or at a lower rate than workers? Who decides? This is not clear. History bears out what these theoretical predictions describe. We see historically in three test cases of the USA versus USSR, West Germany versus East Germany, North Korea versus South Korea, the socialist economies generally severely lag behind their capitalist competitors. For example, during the Cold War, in nearly all cases, the USSR was one or two steps behind the US military and armaments innovation and two or three steps behind in consumer goods innovation. We can also see that in arguably proto-socialist society, Sparta, innovation was stifled and it was capitalist Athens that gave birth to the Western mind. Why is it that reactionary czarist Russia in its twilight had a galaxy of musicians, novelists, and philosophers, such as Tchaikovsky, Dostoevsky, and Tolstoy, and the USSR in its twilight had nothing to compare with them? Shakespeare was produced in a budding capitalist society, Tolstoy in a decaying feudal society. I would offer that since these societies were not so narrowly circumscribed by the LTV, they could and did give appropriate value to these theories, the one with the greater to these artistic work. Under the assumption that a theory must have explanatory power, and between any two theories, the one with the greater explanatory power is to be preferred, I argue the theoretical critique I offer of the LTV provides the greater explanatory power of these historical patterns and is on these grounds to be preferred. If the socialist would concede the point and say that the LTV does not explain intellectual works, then he must abandon his claim that the LTV is competent to explain all relevant facets of, of the political economy and the intellectuals can be exploited in any meaningful sense. 
or he must use external theory to bootstrap the problem. This creates another issue. If so, is socialism enough? If the core economic assumption of socialism is not enough, then the socialist must appear to something outside of socialism to fix it. How is that then different than the neoliberals bootstrapping the problem of income inequality by post hoc taxation and redistribution? I would argue not at all. Socialists seem to have a dilemma. He must either accept the limitations of the LTV and abandon the idea that intellectuals can be exploited for their work, or the socialist must admit the LTV is not enough and fall into the neoliberal trap of post hoc bootstrapping. That's it. You got it. Thank you very much, Todd, for that opening statement. And we will kick it over to Brenton for his as well. The floor is all yours, Brenton. Thank you. So the topic tonight is can socialism innovate, which is just about the easiest slam dunk of a topic I can imagine, because socialism is an economic and political system created by uh, by humans. Uh, and humans not only can innovate, but I would put forth the proposal that not innovating is actually harder for people than simply going with the flow and, uh, and not coming up with the next new thing. For proof, you only have to look uh, at human history and consider the wonders of arts, creativity, mechanics, science, and culture that have been produced by every group of humans uh, performing every type of labor under the sun. I mean, the ancient Romans quite nearly invented the steam engine. In 50 CE, a mere 50 years after the birth of Christ, the aptly named Hero of Alexandria designed and built uh, a machine that functioned as a rotary engine. He used it to open doors and pump water and even had planks uh, or even had plans sketched out for another contraption that used a design almost identical to modern steam turbine blades. He only had to put two and two together and the ancient Romans could have been cruising around the Aegean in literal steamships. And that's just the Romans. Vikings and Polynesian sailors were crossing the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, respectively, and discovering the very continent that we now find ourselves on 500 and 800 years before Europeans ever made the journey. The Chinese invented gunpowder in the year 900, and nearly a full 2,000 years ago, the Sub-Saharan Africans were smelting metal tools and weapons in furnaces that were 752 degrees hotter than those produced by contemporary Romans. They had also already invented a rudimentary form of aspirin. The point is, if we are to appeal to something as spurious as human nature, and anyone who's ever read Emma Goldman knows that human nature is an extremely spurious thing to appeal to, it would seem that within human nature lies a propensity for creativity and innovation that crosses physical, cultural, and chronological borders with astounding regularity. And one can argue that man is at his most human when he or she is engaged in the act of creation. This type of behavior was even noticed uh, and studied and remarked upon by Karl Marx himself, who wrote of this tendency uh, as part of man's Gottingsweisen, or species essence. In a strange labor, he writes, it is true that animals also produce. They build nests and dwellings like the bee and the beaver, but animals only produce uh, for their own immediate needs and those of their young, and only when immediate need compels them to do so. While man produces even when he is free from physical need and truly produces only in freedom from such need and also in accordance with the laws of beauty. Which is to say that all of those who scoff at a possible socialist society and claim without the carrot and the stick of, hypothet of hypothetical wealth and all too real poverty, without this wholly necessary system of rewards and punishments administered by those in the pay of our own social elites, police, bureaucrats, managers, and jailers, who are empowered to act as gadfly to the great mass of men, 
we wouldn't, without these people, we would inevitably stagnate and return either to living hand to mouth like the other species on this planet, or become so consumed by sloth that our whole civilization would soon collapse back into stupid savagery, or worse, fall prey to another civilization who weren't so keen to spare the rod, nor so compassionate as to fail to empower an army of taskmasters to whip their own people into shape. This is certainly a compelling, if entirely self-serving fiction that our popular propaganda has advanced since at least the 18th century, and well before, in fact. Don't forget, it was the Catholic Church that made sloth a mortal sin as if an order of priests were necessary to preach the virtues of labor into the peasantry, which you have to admit, by the way, is a really funny thought. A priest decked out in vestments, sent by a man who spends his days making proclamations from a giant golden throne, preaching hellfire and damnation to all those who fail to appreciate the virtue of a hard day's labor. As if a priest or politician or CEO knows anything at all about hard work compared to a farmer or factory worker or Amazon employee. The point is, we as Westerners are laboring under a very pernicious delusion, and that delusion is that innovators are rare, and that, they, and that the task of civilization is to find these magical people and elevate them to insane heights of privilege and power that they might continue to innovate. It's as if our society is on the lookout for geese that lay golden eggs, and when we can't find these geese, we just declare that the particular goose who happens to already be sitting on a giant pile of gold must have laid it themselves. And that's how we get people like Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs, and Elon Musk. All people who are renowned for possessing near supernatural reserves of brilliance, know-how, and work ethic, and yet in reality, none of these people are true innovators. Thomas Edison, arguably the best of the three, didn't even really invent the light bulb, and was more like a CEO who bought a building and filled it with other better inventors, and then just told them, innovate. And when these inventors did, he is their boss and the owner of the franchise took credit for their work. Steve Jobs pulled the same scam. When he unveiled the first iPhone in 2007, it didn't even work. The phone itself was primarily a product of taxpayer-subsidized government research, and his entire staff spent the whole day drunk and terrified that the non-working phone might crash and Jobs would ruin their careers over it. And let's not forget that Jobs himself was never a great genius, just a man lucky enough to have access to the labs at Xerox and all the technology contained within. And then we have Elon Musk, heralded as the real world Tony Stark, whose most important and brilliant career move was to be born the son of a man who owned a literal emerald mine. And it was those emeralds and not any particular genius, nor amount of hard work, nor great reserve of discipline that put Musk into the position he is in today. You see, we have this idea that genius and creativity are exceptionally rare characteristics, and this is simply not the case. Rather, human creativity is broadly distributed among the species, but the opportunity to express and realize that creativity is not. This is borne out by the data. In a paper published by Professor Raj Chetty of Stanford University, which analyzed the backgrounds of patent holders in the United States, it was determined that the single greatest predictor of whether or not a child might go on uh, to be an innovator uh, was not the presence of talent, ingenuity, or drive, but how much money their parents made. The problem here is so bad that students with exceptional scores in childhood mathematics were no more likely to invent anything at all than the students with poor scores. That is, if only their parents were not among the highest income earners in the country. This data confirms exactly what paleontologist Stephen Gould famously wrote in 1980. I am somewhat less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. That, this is to say, 
that we humans are positively awash in geniuses, yet our society cannot recognize them because our current intelligence system relies on financial indicators of success in order to decide precisely which individuals shall have the privilege of making their will manifest and throws roadblock after roadblock in the way of anyone who exists outside of this paradigm. What socialism will do, which can be broadly understood as an economic democratization of vital industries and resources, i.e. worker ownership within the context of an economy that is not beholden to the demands of profit and loss, which in simpler words, the whims of a tiny class of elites who earn their money not by the sweat of their brow, but by speculative monetary investments, socialism will free millions, if not billions of humans from this economic bondage. And with their liberation, an ocean of creativity will be unleashed in the form of artistic, cultural, and scientific achievements, the full extent of which, even in our current age of rapidly increasing technological wonders, will likely be unfathomable, unfathomable to us. The fact is, is that democracy, unlike monarchy and dictatorship, is grounded firmly in the principles of evolution. And as such, the more democratic and participatory we can make our intelligence system, the more each member of society will have the opportunity to bring their unique skills, talents, and perspective to the great collective social work of human society the more fully we all benefit from their contributions. In short, socialism as our next major economic and political system will ensure that we won't have a single Albert Einstein, but instead thousands, if not millions of Einsteins who are no longer constrained by the drudgery that is the current reality of being forced to work for the capitalists. And if this all seems too utopian for you, and you are perhaps still in the thrall of that nasty propaganda that I mentioned earlier, that equates, uh, that equates our current lower classes with animals and beasts of burden, and fear that without the carrot and the lash, these people will simply choose to do nothing with their time, let me remind you that psychologically speaking, what you are alleging is a fever dream. We have known for a long time that when the basics are taken care of for humans, they don't sit back and stagnate, but instead seek new heights and new masteries and new challenges to overcome. This basic principle that was touched upon by Marx was proven later by Abraham Maslow and expressed in the popular imagination via his hierarchy of needs. It's not the socialists who's staring at humanity through rose-tinted glasses and imagining an impossible future that is a th uh, threat to innovation. Rather, it is uh, those whose imagination has been stunted by this popular propaganda who tether humanity to the past. The fact is, is that we've been ready to run for a while now. Our species is, in fact, chomping at the bit to do so. But without a new liberatory way of doing things, we will forever remain lashed to the cart. And so what's most important here uh, with all of the problems that we face in the 21st century is that we as a so society find a way to get out of our own way. And the first step towards doing that is to transition to a socialist economy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brenton. We will now kick it over to, for our last closing statement, thanks everybody. We're going to move into open discussion after this. This is from Keith. Thanks so much, Keith. The floor is all yours. Well, when I was preparing my opening statement, I thought I would start by explaining what my actual views are. And I, after listening to the other opening statements, I, I think I was right to, to approach it in that direction because while I, I don't really disagree with a whole lot I've heard so far, but I do think we probably have some disagreements on what socialism and capitalism actually are. Um, and I also, just for the uh, sake of uh, interest, I, I want the listeners to know that they're not, uh, that, that Brent and Ben are not debating Ben Shapiro here. So I do want to, uh, 
differentiate my views from those of say a free market conservative or a right libertarian or somebody like that. So I'll just get, I'll provide just a general overview of what my actual approach to political economy is. Uh, first of all, um, I reject any kind of singular determinism, but if I had to be some kind of determinist, um, I would be a political determinist because I think the distribution of political power and military power and the power to engage in coercive violence generally precedes most other forms of social organization and most, most other features of social organization. Before you can have an economic system, you have to have a distribution of power in the wider society, and that's determined by a variety of factors. Another feature of economic life are the natural features like geography and topography and climate. Uh, there's also human capital, things like the level of health and education and things like that that are found in a particular society. There's also the cultural values and the social norms of a society which interact with uh, economic actions and shape economic outcomes. Now, in terms of my wider view of you know, human beings or what human society is, you know, I generally, with some qualifications, agree with Hobbes or perhaps Machiavelli that society is largely a collection of conflicting groups and individuals that are pursuing their own interests and that rent-seeking is an inevitable feature of social life. Now, that's not to say that humans don't have a, a cooperative side as well, but that's hardly the sum total of, of what human beings are and what human beings do. Uh, I'm also a moral skeptic. Uh, my perspective is not about who is most moral, uh, but I'm just simply interested in how do things work. Um, for example, the idea of total equality may sound moral in theory, but does it work? Is it possible? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, I also hold to power elite theory. Uh, I, I'm not a Marxist, I'm not a Keynesian, or you know, the, those are the two dominant paradigms among liberal and left opinion. And then I'm not an Austrian economist or a neoclassical economist either. Those are the two dominant paradigms on the right. So I'm none of that. Uh, as I said, you're not debating Ben Shapiro here. Um, uh, what I do believe though, is that the state, the ruling class, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, are the full range of power elite institutions, not just the political government. Uh, the analogy I would make would be to the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, the ruling class was the church, the, uh, the, the, the aristocracy, the royal dynasties, and all of that, the military. Uh, and it's the same way in our modern societies. Instead of the uh, royal families, we've got these political dynasties, the Bushes, the Clintons, the Trumps, whatever. Uh, instead of feudal um, manners, we've got these mass corporations. Instead of the church, we've got the media and the universities, and we've still got the military. So not a whole lot has really changed in that regard. Uh, as far as major economic paradigms, I'm probably closer to the institutional economist, which is the idea that uh, economic life is made up of individuals, firms, uh, political institutions, social organizations, social norms, culture, all of these things interact with each other to make economic life what it is. And I think if you leave out any of those, you're, you're running into problems. Uh, I also uh, agree with the anarchist critique of the state and of concentrated power generally. My influences there would be uh, historians and anthropologists like James Scott, Harold Barclay, David Graeber, Franz Oppenheimer, uh, who pointed out that the historic role of the state in societies is to centralize control over wealth and property. So I hold to a somewhat uh, similar critique of the relationship between state and capital that you find among individualist anarchists like, say, Benjamin Tucker, Lysander Spooner, maybe Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, maybe Henry George, figures similar to that within that tradition. 
Um, I'll also concede that socialism, uh, broadly defined, and I think socialism is a really broad concept, and uh, I appreciate the efforts earlier to define it. I think there are some problems with the uh, definition that was provided, but I would, I would agree that socialism is not inherently statist in theory. That's a common argument that, say, conservatives and right libertarians make. But for example, there was an interesting uh, essay written by Larry Gambone, uh, a Canadian anarchist about 15 years ago, where he described uh, the tr different traditions within socialism and talked about how a lot of the classical 19th century socialists did not view uh, their idea of socialism as some sort of state-run economy. Instead, they were more into communes and cooperatives and worker collectives and anarcho-syndicalist unions and things like that. Uh, now, I do have a, a criticism of anarcho-communism. I think it's a product of time and place. I think it is derived from societies that were feudal agrarian economies that were based on subsistence production and, and peasant communal traditions. But you know, before any anarcho-communists feel slighted, I also have the same problem with the deification of John Locke that you see in a lot of right libertarian and anarcho-capitalist thinking. I also think the Lockean uh, approach to, uh, to political economy is rooted in a specific time period. It's rooted in this early modern, early bourgeois, uh, during the early phases of the market revolution and reflects that kind of uh, uh, limited historical framework. Uh, I'll also acknowledge that communes can exist on a functional level. There's a place not far from where I live called Twin Oaks. Some friends of mine have lived there. Monasteries are certainly a matter, uh, a type of commune that, it, that it has existed for centuries in many different cultures. Uh, there's a place in Spain called Marina Lida. It's a kind of socialist leftist commune that seems to function very uh, very well. There's some sort of spiritualist commune in India called Auroraville. That's been there for decades and seems to work pretty well. Uh, I, I have a lot of anarchist friends that are fan of a novel called uh, they're fans of a novel called Bola Bolo that kind of outlines this future futuristic uh, anarcho-communist society based on all these communes with all these uh, strange um, identities that engage in uh, exchange with each other. And I don't know that something like that is impossible in real life. Um, but I do think scale is problematic. If we uh, look at the work of Robin Dunbar, for example, we see the idea that once you start getting uh, into a group that's, say, larger than 150 people, you start running into problems when it comes into cooperation uh, because people are more cooperative with people they know. And you know, we all know that from our personal lives. You know, We tend to uh, approach people we know and interact with on a person-to-person -person basis in a way that's much different than, say, when we're arguing with people on Facebook. Um, so. Uh, I do think scale is a serious issue when it comes to things like communes and, and cooperatives and things of that nature. Um, now, I am probably the last person on earth who's going to be defending capitalism, or, or at least the what is commonly called capitalism. Uh, there's a whole lot of problems with capitalism. Um, the issues, first of all, are concentrated economic power, centralization of control over wealth and resources. Uh, I don't think capitalism, as at least as commonly understood, could, could exist without the state. Uh, I think that most conservatives and libertarians are not nearly thorough enough in their economic critique of the relationship between capitalism and the state. Uh, as I said earlier, I think corporations are the new modern, uh, they're the modern feudal manorial system. And corporations play the same role in our society that the feudal manorial system did in the Middle Ages. Uh, I'm also not one of these property rights fundamentalists. Um, I, you know, property rights to me is a social construct. It's like table manners. It's like different styles of dress, different styles of music. It's relative to time and place. 
Uh, I would also agree that non-state economies do not necessarily have to be market per se, and that economies generally do not have to be market-based. For example, the Incas had a, a non-market economy uh, based on a system of, of exchange between productive units. Uh, and I think something like that could even be replicated in an anarchistic sense, like as a federation of monasteries or communes or something like that. Uh, but I do see some serious problems with quote unquote socialism as conventionally understood. Um, most people that I know who claim to be socialist, I think hold to one of four basic ideas. One is utopianism, uh, the idea of full communism from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. Um, I, I don't frankly just don't see that working. Uh, you know, it's uh, I, there's always going to be rent seekers, as I said. Uh, there's also what's commonly called communism, Stalinism, Maoism, totalitarianism, the command economy. Uh, I don't think anyone on this panel is in favor of that, so I'll leave that to the side. To aside. Uh, then there's social democracy, which to me is just capitalism plus the welfare state. And I, calling that socialism, I think, is problematic. Uh, and then left. Okay, and then there's democratic socialism, and based on what I know of Ben's work, I think this is probably his viewpoint, uh, which is an expanded public sector with nationalized industries managed democratically by and run by unions. I would submit that in a system like we have in the United States today, we have a system like that. We have a, uh, we, there is an industry that is owned by the state, run on a nonprofit basis, and we're, which is essentially controlled by unions, and that industry is called the police. And I'll just leave it at that for now. Oops, I was on mute. So, folks, um, what I was saying there was thank you so much to our guests for their opening statements. We're going to jump into the open conversation right now. And so, as mentioned, if you happen to have any questions, feel free to fire them into the live chat, tagging me with at Modern A Debate. And with that, thanks, gentlemen. The floor is all yours. Yeah. Uh... So, so I, I did just, just want to real quick uh, make one general comment, and then I was hoping we could go back to a couple of things that Todd said. The general comment is that I don't really think I heard any explanation of why socialism uh, can't innovate in, uh, in either of those, those opening statements. You know, I heard some general thoughts about capitalism and socialism, but that seems to be slightly different. Uh, then this, the specific thing is, uh, so Todd... Um, made some uh, historical claims that I thought were kind of odd. So, I mean, I don't think Sparta, there was certainly nothing socialist about Sparta, and there was also nothing capitalist about Athens. They were both slave societies. So I, I, I don't understand that part at all. Uh, and uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, the, uh, these, these parallels about uh, West Germany and East Germany and the U.S. and the USSR and stuff, North Korea and South Korea, all of those seem to be relevant to a way of using the word socialism that, that I don't think either of us uh, are, are using, using it in, as, as was mentioned earlier. But I also don't see what it has to do with any of the stuff about the labor theory of value. Uh, because as far as I could tell, and please talk, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm getting you wrong, the claim is that somehow uh, these societies were less successful because they were trying to compensate people uh, for the amount of value that they created understood in terms of the labor theory of value and socially necessary labor time and that just didn't work as well and I think that's just historically just flatly not true uh, that the Soviet Union or North Korea or uh, East Germany ever 
claimed uh, claimed to be doing that. And it's also interesting to note that uh, Karl Marx uh, very explicitly didn't advocate that. It is true that he believed in the uh, labor theory of value, just like lots of capitalists, uh, pro-capitalist economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo believed in the labor theory of value. Uh, by the way, uh, there are plenty of Marxists uh, who, uh, you know, who are heterodox and reject that part of Marx. Uh, so G.A. Cohen, for example, has a paper, you can find it on the Verso uh, website, uh, called uh, Labor Theory of Value and the Concept of Exploitation, where he argues, I think, very convincingly uh, to me that the, uh, that the Marxist claim uh, that workers are exploited is logically independent of uh, whether you're a marginalist about value or you believe the labor theory of value or anything like that. That's just a separate issue. You know, regardless of what you think makes it the case that goods have the value that they do, that's a separate question from who has a right to distribute the surplus value that's created. And the objection is basically, you know, to, to put it in all American terms, is the private sector version of uh, taxation without representation uh, in, uh, in, in capitalist firms. But it's also just not the case that Karl Marx uh, said that uh, we should be compensating everybody uh, for exactly as much, uh, you know, labor as they put in, uh, understood in terms of socially necessary labor time. Uh, there was a faction in the German socialist movement that uh, that sort of said that, the Lasallians. But if you read Marx's critique of the Gotha program, he criticizes them for saying uh, just that. Right, he says that in the early stages of socialist society, it might be necessary to tie compensation to how much people are putting in, with a whole bunch of caveats. Uh, because in order, but his reason for saying that is because it would be necessary for the sake of incentivizing labor. But he also says there's a, there's a strong sense in which this would be unjust because some people are smarter than other people, some people are stronger than other people. So he said if you're ultimately, if you're rewarding people for, for how much they put in, it might be a necessary evil at some stage, uh, but it's it's not, uh, but you're just recreating a natural aristocracy because you're, you know, because you're depriving some people based on things they can't control, like how smart they are and how strong they are. Uh, and final thought about this before, you know, uh, Brenton gets in or the other team, you know, uh, could respond uh, is just that, look, I certainly don't advocate, you know, I mean, Brenton can speak for himself, but I certainly don't advocate uh, that we make some sort of attempt uh, to, uh, to, to compensate people by calculating exact socially necessary labor hours or, or, or anything like that. Uh, I certainly don't think that I'm out of step with the socialist tradition in that. I think Marx says in Critique of the Gotha program that uh, the Lasallians are wrong to be obsessed with the question of, of how uh, payment is distributed, because he says that's not the point of the socialist project. The point of the socialist project, the essence of it, the, the wildly unjust and unequal distribution we have under capitalism is just a system. The essential question is who <clears throat> controls the means of production, because they're the ones who decide how it's being distributed. So what I would say about how to distribute is, look, I think we can have a fairly egalitarian state sector and worker cooperatives that actually exist. They don't have totally egalitarian pay scales, but they're way more egalitarian uh, than regular capitalist firms. And that sounds good to me. And I just don't see how all the uh, LTV stuff is relevant. Let's give a good point. amount of time to Todd just to respond to as many points as possible. Yeah. So let me, let me first ask uh, a question to make sure that we're on the same page and not talking past each other. Um, I was watching a video of yours a couple of days ago to sort of prepare for this debate where you were discussing the theory of exploitation. And it sounded to me what you were saying was this. 
once we calculate the total cost of the product from the, the capital inputs in, and then the amount of cost of the labor of the worker, that's the total cost of the product. And then the capitalist then sort of dips into the value that the worker produced and then adds that to his value to turn a profit, which is then what would be called exploitation. Is that a fair uh, description of, of uh, your, your thought on that? It's not how I would describe it, but as I just pointed out, I was just talking for a long time. So if you want to uh, if you want to respond to other points before we go back to me, go right ahead. Sure, sure. So when 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 we talk about the idea of, of the cost of the unit production of something, mm-hmm. uh, the, the SNLT says that we look at the average cost of these things by the average worker, by the average machine tool. And then we can get a rough estimate of what that should be valued at or what that should be cost at any given time T in the economy based on these given factors. And so we could have a rough idea within a socialist system of what what we ought to be valuing these things. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to say, this is a one-to-one correlation. We might have other reasons to raise it or low it, but that sort of puts it in a ballpark figure. And what I'm saying is if that's where value is derived from, works that do not have average costs where you can't look at a sector and see the average cost of it, it's only going to happen once. It's not clear how that can easily be accounted for in that theory. So for the record, not what I think. I think that you could have any theory of value. It could be a marginalist about okay. that. And the exploitation claim still stands, that they have a, uh, that, uh, that, way, that workers are certainly creating the products that have value. And we could just bracket uh, the question of uh, of where those products get their value, uh, the workers create the products that have value and therefore have a default right uh, to control how that value is distributed, how much of it they take home, how much of it spent on new production, et cetera. Uh, and I'm not convinced that the uh, that um, capitalists, you know, taking their cuts is is legitimate. But that's a that's a normative argument. It has nothing to do. Uh, with uh, with with average you know labor costs or anything like that. Yeah, oh, I got oh, a tail on that really quickly. Uh, by the way, Todd, because I was I was surprised to hear this, but I about the LTV, but I, I hear this from capitalists a lot, and I think it's because they get really excited about supposedly LTV disproving exploitation. Um, with looking into the marginalist revolution because of these older critiques that some socialists. Uh, are still kind of obsessed with um, because they're nerds um, <laughs> or because they lived at the time of, you know, Marx and Adam Smith. Um, but th- the fact is, is that LTV versus subjective theory of value, it, I don't think it in any way gets to the heart of what people are complaining about because it, it let's say, I'm not so much concerned of like what percentage of the workers labor is being unfairly and unjustly appropriated by the capitalist as I am the, the, the inherent um, relationship of being an employer and an employee is an inherently um, exploitative relationship that can never ever under a capitalist thing be equitable because you have two parties bargaining from systems uh, from unequal positions of power. And to a certain extent to say to what, um, to what Keith had said, um, you know, the, you won't ever have perfect equality, 
but you can that doesn't stop you from trying to make things as equal and as even and as fair as possible you know within the realm of what we can do in an average day as people in a flawed world so the problem is more when you sign an employment contract with an employer you are already being exploited because you and the employer stand but while you both stand to gain from that contract the worker stands to gain far less from the contract than the employer does. And the employer risks far less by not signing that worker because there's always another worker to sign. So, and the worst thing that can really happen to an employer is to lose their capital and become a worker. So when you have that kind of position where one party holds almost all the cards, unless workers do something like unionize uh, or engage in direct action to increase their power uh, against the employer, um, you will always have a contract that comes down unfairly and exploitatively on on one of the parties. So I, I don't think even if you did defeat LTV, and I'm not 100% sure that LTV has been completely defeated because it's mainly a philosophical point, I, I don't think that defeats socialism and it definitely doesn't defeat uh, exploitation theory. But um, what I, and you know, again, I, I don't think that this means that we can't innovate. Um, again, people can innovate in any society, as I pointed out, you know, the Romans nearly invented the steam engine. Um, and, and then just really quickly on what you said, this is more of a personal thing, but you mentioned that um, a, so one of the problems that I noticed in your criticism of entertainment was that uh, the, the tacit assumption that an entertainer, an artist like myself, has to appeal to the largest audience possible and that um, this creates tension like within the work. And it does when the work is for profit in a capitalist economy, when art is not art, but art is a product. But the fact is, is that a, uh, an artist like myself doesn't have to appeal to everyone in the world. My work, you know, I, I would love it if people, if a lot of people really liked my work, but ultimately I just need enough people to locate my work, identify with it, and help to support me so that I can continue to do it. Um, that's, that's really all I need. I don't need everything that I produce to be the next Marvel movie, for instance. It is the will to efficiency and the drive to use art for profit. That's what creates the tension. So these tensions would not be present in a socialist society. And even if you look at socialist and there's been incredible socialist art that's been coming out over the centuries, but um, you know, even in the, the Soviet Union, you did have some incredible innovations. I'm not going to defend the Soviet Union uh, because I think that there's a lot that's wrong with that model. But you know, just even with that model, which I think is probably one of the worst attempts at socialism that we've had, you've got um, incredible artists like Shostakovich coming out. Um, and granted, Shostakovich did br bristle against the, the Soviet government and some of his most beautiful work was done after he was forced to join the Communist Party. But at the same time, that's sort of the artist's job. We're supposed to bristle at the society around us because we are supposed to stand outside of society and to provide an insight that um, may not be visible to those who are in the pale. That's why we are beyond the pale. <laughs> so, I mean, you've got Shostakovich. You also have Soviet cinema, which was, in, I mean, they pioneered the jump cut. 
Um, there are a number of really incredible innovations that came even from this, what I would argue again, poor example of socialism um, that just really um, is mind blowing. The whole fact that we went to the moon like the Americans never would have gone to the moon without the Russians shooting a dog into space. And why did the Russians shoot a dog into space? Because they weren't concerned about profit, because they were looking to do something to advance science and to, to make the, their mark in a way that did not directly lead to making profits for an investor class. Um, and then, of course, the Americans, we just had to outdo them at it because we're, we're jerks. <laughs> but um, the, the point being is, is that without that first part of the dialectic, without uh, the Soviet space program, the American space program would have never happened until there was a market incentive to do it. And there's still not a market incentive to go to space today. And I would yeah. just, just, to, just to put a little bow on, on something Brad just said, I mean, if, if you're worried about excessive artistic populism, you know, about artists having to appeal too much to the majority of the population, uh, then, uh, which, you know, is a problem you might still have under certain forms of socialism, but it's damn sure a problem you have under capitalism. And if you if you want to avoid that, uh, then what you want is to find ways to, to de-link compensation for artists uh, from uh, market forces. And I would suggest that even within the United States, uh, some New Deal programs, you know, did that quite effectively. Uh, certainly, the so you know certainly the Soviet case, and certainly in principle, you know you could have you know uh, as part of a society with a vastly beefed up you know public sector, you know you could have a vastly beefed up level of state support for the arts. Uh, we could argue about whether socialism is necessary or sufficient to get that, but uh, but it's it's certainly not something that's like it's 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 certainly not obvious how the transition from capitalism to socialism uh, is supposed to increase. The problem of artistic populism rather than decrease it. Yeah, Can like, I add Jackson, real quick, because I, I want to make this point before I forget. Let's not forget that Jackson Pollock, one of those famous I think American this is, painters. Just to be fair, that I, yeah. I think it might have been Brenton and then Ben and then Brenton. And so, like, just to be sure that they have oh. plenty of time to respond. <laughs> Sure, sure. Can I just get this out real quick? Uh, just to, to put this on here. As long as um, we give the same amount of time back to them. That's fine. We can give it back to them. But what I really want to make sure clear here is that Jackson Pollock, uh, one of the most famous American painters, his work was directly supported by the CIA as a weapon against the Soviets. Like there were freaking suits coming in there. They didn't care about Jackson Pollock's art. What they wanted to do was they wanted to use his art as propaganda to show, look how free and innovative the, the West is. So they threw, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars at him and other um, artists, which ironically, the same people that were paranoid about the Soviets and hated, also hated Jackson Pollock and hated his art and didn't want the government spending money on it. And they had to go back and spend it in secret. All right. So uh, first of all, uh, neither Keith nor I are advocating for the current state of capitalism or that the current state of capitalism would necessarily make any one of these things better or worse. So we can just dispense with that because neither one of us are arguing for that. Now, with regards to the, the artistic angle, and this is definitely going to be more of a discussion more towards Brent's way. When you look at a democratic decision-making process, when you then have to divvy up the resources in order to, so there's at least two reasons why I, I think theoretically you would see a more uh, populist shift in art under a socialist society. One is when you have to appeal to whatever body is organized to distribute the resources amongst the community where you get your cut, um, 
for those people who are producing tangible physical goods, it's going to be a lot easier for them to justify their cut. I'm growing your fruit. I'm baking your bread. I'm making your clothes. You don't have to, you don't have to try as hard to sell the fact that you're going to need that cut of the public stock to do your job. If you want to do art, it's not as immediately intuitive to people. That doesn't mean you can't make your case, but in order to make your case, in order to get an, an access to the public fund, one of the things you're going to have to do is in any is in any democratic society, you're going to have to appeal to as many people as possible in order to support your purpose, your agenda on this. And I think what that is going to lead to over time is a populist pull, which will lead to, as I think, a diseconomy of scale, where you have to make too many people happy to get the resources you need to make the product. Now that's that's getting the resources for you to make the product. And then depending on how popular you want it to be, because artists and some artists like Tolkien don't care if they're popular or not. That's true. But there are those that do. And for those that do, I think they're going to be um, not only incentivized to be more such that way, they're going to be selected for because they're going to have a way of thinking that is more consistent with a democratic process. If somebody's very brooding and isolated like a Tolkien, he might be viewed as someone who's not sufficiently participatory in the democracy and might not be popular. And it might be hard for him to swing a vote for resources to be allocated to him to do socialistic art. Whereas if somebody is more interested in being popular with other people, there's also that pressure to then put as much in there to make these people happy. And I think that is with that, and because you have to have all these different factors, all these different elements of the society, at least, a 51% majority on your side to get the resources transferred over, at least on a reliable basis. There's gonna be a trend and a pull in that direction. Whereas if you have one class to worry about, and it doesn't have to be a capitalist class, it is many different classes throughout history. It, it makes that easier in the sense that you only have to worry about one group of people and you can refine your work to that group of people. And over time, you can have a deeper, tradition. So as I, as I mentioned, in the, in the ancient world, we had, you know, the Iliad, the Aeneid, and, and the Odyssey, all of which were written for basically the same class interest. And we do see that because it's the same class interest, we have a coherence and a tightness. And these are classic works that are still studied today. Uh, we, we don't, may, one could argue hypothetically, the socialist democratic experiment hasn't been around long enough to try, maybe. But, you know, Reformation England within 70 years produced Shakespeare. So, I mean, I also don't know how long we're supposed to wait. But but I don't want to make a historical argument per se. I'd prefer to make a theoretical one. And the theoretical argument that I'm making is that the pressures of a democratic society would tend to pull the creators. So the idea that the creator wants to just do what they want to do, and then there's, you know, these external pressures that pull them away under capitalism, Sure, I will concede that point. But what I will what I will say though is I do think there's a there's a, a tension that isn't maybe fully aware, maybe fully cognizant in many socialists that there would be another tension pulling people away from just a pure act of creativity, that they would have to worry about these other uh, interest groups that want to have a stake in what they're producing because in part they're subsidizing it by the total value they're producing in a socialist economy. And uh, I, I think I, yeah, Keith, uh, unless you have anything to say, I'd like to toss it back to Brent. 
Well, I would like to respond uh, to something that uh, Ben said uh, in response to us, which is that we really didn't uh, get into this question of innovation, like how is socialism incompatible with innovation? Um, a problem I have with a lot of what I'm hearing so far is it doesn't really sound like anyone is talking about socialism, at least not as I would understand socialism. Uh, I, I hear a lot of discussion of either modified capitalism or social democracy or anarchism being discussed. Uh, but I don't know that that's really what socialism is viewed in a proper historical context. Um, you know, I, I would concede that certainly, as I said before, real life cooperatives can exist. Uh, Mondragon is a good example. I'd say an even better example is the Emilia Romagna, which is in Italy. Uh, and I'm not in favor of giant hierarchical organizations or narrow concentrations of power or a narrow concentration over investment decisions like we have in our, you know, in our current system. Um, you know, I like the idea of say stakeholder partnerships and decentralization and diversification of participation and investment decision-making processes. But the, the problem I see is that capital markets are still necessary for innovation because innovation requires investment, which means that resources have to be transferred from elsewhere to invest in new products, new technologies, labor costs, et cetera. Um, an example would be healthcare. Healthcare is capital intensive because of the cost of the advanced technology that's involved. It's also labor intensive because it requires lots of workers and lots of highly skilled workers. And it's also got a very high level of consumer demand because everyone needs healthcare. Uh, and that's one of the primary reasons why healthcare is so expensive. It's not the only reason by any means, but it is a major contributing factor. Um, socialism, as I have always understood it in the you know, 35 years I've been studying it, is based on the idea that we're eliminating the market. Uh, instead, what we're doing is we're engaged in subsistence production for the meeting of human needs rather than the production of profit. That is, we have a subsistence-based planned economy. We determine we see socialist my whole adult life, and I've never met anybody who advocates uh, subsistence-level production. Uh, and well, let, let me let me finish my point. Let me finish my point. Democracy, because you wouldn't have a capitalist class. Oh, well, let's all right. Just uh, hear plenty from uh, Keith and Todd. Okay. Um, well, the idea behind socialism, as I understand it, is that we produce to meet human needs. It's not just to make profit. Capitalism is the idea that you, you produce things to sell on the market to generate profit, and then you use your profit to invest in uh, new production to produce more profit. That's capitalism. Um, socialism is, okay, you want to rationalize production. You want to rationalize it where, okay, we need housing for everyone. We need health care for everyone. We need food for everyone. And how are we going to get that? So we want to allocate resources in this kind of rationalistic plan, planned economy. Um, the problem, I, when I say subsistence, I'm not talking about subsistence of, well, we're just going to produce enough to keep start, from starving to death, and that's all. I, I don't, and I've never met a Marxist, as Ben said, I've never met a Marxist who believe that. Right? But, but it's still subsistence production in the sense of you're producing to meet need rather than to produce for, for profit. Uh, I think that's the, what I mean by subsistence. The problem with that, though, is that you don't necessarily have a surplus to invest in innovation. Uh, and I think even more seriously, you don't really have mechanisms for exchange that result in the division of labor, which makes the specialization that's necessary for innovation possible. Now, it's possible to certainly change the definition of, say, property rights. 
rights, for example, usufructuary rights instead of the homesteading principle, or G Henry George's you know, land tenure theory or whatever. Or you could also change the structure of production. You could have cooperatives, communes, collectives, clubs, unions, workers, councils, or whatever. You could have those instead of conventional capitalist companies or even petty bourgeois firms. Um, or you could uh, shift control of production from capitalist corporations directly to the state. But I don't think that eliminates any of these problems. Now, another issue is socialism, as I understand it, is about trying to eliminate the law of value. And that gets back to the issue that I was talking about earlier about subsistence production as opposed to production for profit. All right now, uh, some years ago, I heard a lecture by Mike Perenni, uh, a leading Marxist scholar. Uh, he's probably fairly old by now, probably 80 something, 90 something. But um, he observed that all modern socialist regimes had more or less the same model of society. It was the one party state, the command economy, the planned economy, and mentioned not only the quote unquote communist countries were like that, but most socialist countries were like that. Robert Mugabe's uh, Zimbabwe was like that. Uh, so a lot of economies that didn't identify specifically with you know, the Marxist-Leninist paradigm still had a similar uh, uh, political and economic model. And, and, and Perenti suggested that, that there was a reason for this. and. That is, it's what's most workable in that kind of uh, contextual sense, because in order to have an economy... Just to, pardon my interruption, just to, because we'll pretty quick, we'll go into the Q&A. And so what we might need to do is, uh, once we hear from the no position team in terms of wrapping this portion up, we might have to go to a kind of our last kind of little responses before we go into the Q&A. So just want to give you a heads up just because we had a little bit of a late start and we don't want to go too far over uh, our time. I only have about one more sentence. Gotcha. Um, in, in order to have an economy where the law of value is eliminated, you end up with a rationing system like what they had in the Soviet system. And to, to have a system like that, you have to have a maximum amount of social and labor discipline. And that's how you get a military model of labor organization and production, like you do and have in these kinds of Marxist Leninist command economies. So I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, so I'll point something out very, very obviously. There's a reason why a lot of um, states that were supported financially and militarily by the USSR took on aspects of the political structure of the USSR, and that's because the USSR was arming them. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'd, I'd, also, I'd also say this idea that Robert Mugabe, if there's anything socialist by any definition about Robert Mugabe's uh, Zimbabwe is, is, is extremely odd. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, not only, you know, it's not like there's no, uh, most, you know, people in that country work for regular capitalist employers. I mean, you certainly can't say social democracy isn't socialism without saying that's not socialism. And again, what's being advocated here, there's a very clear definition that we started with at the beginning of the, of, of the debate of socialism. And what's being advocated is not social democracy, even if you have, and there are several decades at this point of uh, branches of socialist theory that advocate some form of market socialism, or think you'd have to at least start out with some form of market socialism. Uh, but uh, what makes it socialism and not just social democracy is that you don't still have a separate capitalist class owning the means of production. Uh, two really quick things I wanted to, to say uh, are, one, just to go back and think about artistic creativity, Todd gave us a sort of a priori speculative reason uh, to think that you'd have more artistic populism under socialism. But if you look 
actually existed state support for the arts, as conservatives are constantly complaining about, uh, it goes in the opposite direction, that, that, uh, that that's what enables art that often offends uh, mass taste is delinking it from the market and having something like the National Endowment for the Arts that has its own procedures for giving it out that don't depend on popularity. I think under socialism, you'd have much more of that. I also want to go back to an important claim that Keith made at the end of uh, his opening statement, which is that like police abuses say something negative about democratic socialism uh, because the police are publicly owned and because it's unionized. And I'd say that the that uh, of course, sure, we could pick out the police. We could also pick out Medicare. You know, uh, we, we, we could pick out lots of other actually existing publicly owned things staffed by unionized workers uh, that the left is rightly, you know, big fans of. Uh, but uh, the problem with the police uh, is that the communities they police have too little control over them, not too much. And so the one thing that's worse than publicly owned police is privately owned police uh, who are accountable, not even in the totally inadequate way that existing police are to the communities that they police, uh, but not at all to those communities. They're accountable uh, to uh, to the people who uh, uh, the people who sign their paychecks. And the last the last point I make is I still haven't heard a reason that socialism can't innovate. Yeah, um, what I as much as I want to really jump down the theoretical artist whole, you know, that's my jam. And Todd, maybe you and I can have a, a conversation about that. Um, I think what I wanted to point out about um, the first off, the way in which resources are distributed within a socialist society does not have to be, there, there could be any number of ways to distribute those resources, whether you're using market socialism or you're using um, a GA model, which by the way, you don't need a 51% um, uh, ruling majority to make decisions within a GA model. Uh, it's actually a very, um, uh, it, it's a very diverse way of handling problems, which where you can even have a very small but very vocal minority that is still able to get its way uh, within a consensus-based system. Um, so I, I think that what's happening here is socialism is being very narrowly defined. It's being very narrowly defined in a way that I don't see reflected in modern socialist movements. Um, I don't hear a lot of arguments about LTV, for instance, being correct coming from socialists. You, you just don't hear that. Uh, similarly, again, like with the Robert Mugabe, that I, I've never ever heard, like even the worst tanky, I've never heard anyone defend Mugabe. <laughs> <laughs> like the I person who, I yeah okay fair enough but yeah you got some weird people <laughs> clustered around you um but like so I, I think overall um what's important here to understand is like the type of socialism that ben and i are arguing for is more about one who controls economic production it, who actually controls it and, and how to how does it function um, there's been a lot has been said about not having profit, but it's very important to understand, like in an economic context, not having profit does not mean that you don't have a surplus. It means that you are a lack of profit in an economic sense is a lack of money that is in that surplus that has been earmarked to be sent to a, a, a class of investors. Nonprofits can make a ton of money. And I'm not saying we build a, a, a thing of non-profits. Non-profits can make way more money that they put out 
than they take in. The difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit corporation within the United States right now is that the nonprofit does not hand that profit over to a board of directors. Rather, they take that money and they, one, give it to their employees, and two, use it to invest and continue in the work that they are doing. So in a nonprofit-driven economy, you can still have organizations, assuming we're still using money, that take in a huge, huge surplus because what they're doing is something people really identify with uh, and, and want to see more of. And they can then take that money and roll it over into more of their work and into more innovation. So a lack of profit does not stifle innovation. And in fact, I would go as far as to say that profit-seeking behavior itself stifles innovation because good is always going to get the, about the same rewards as great um, and at the same time, it's going to cost a lot less. There's only so, such so, so good of a sandwich someone can make. So a, a mind-blowing sandwich will probably cost about the same as a eh, okay sandwich. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to say overall, I, I don't think a lack of profit is going to be what's going to stifle innovation within a socialist society. So Keith and Todd, we can give you each a quick response back. And then what we'll do is go into the Q&A. So Keith and Todd, the floor is yours. Okay, uh, Keith, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, well, I could say a lot of things in response to, to what's been said. Uh, and once again, I think it, a lot of it comes down to terminology because we seem to have different uh, conceptions of what socialism is. Um, but I, I think I, could, I would go a bit further, though, and, and start and, and offer some other social science insights because. The problem that I see with any kind of system, whether you call it socialist or capitalist or whatever, is first of all, um, the idea behind democratic socialism, as I understand it, is you've got mass democracy, you know, it's the people's state, it's the people's economy and, and all of these kinds of things. Uh, the workplaces are democratic. The, you know, something like, uh, I suppose something like Walmart would be nationalized and put under workers control with some sort of Democratic Council or something like that. I mean, I, 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 I'm familiar with some of these theories, but I think that some other issues come in, into play that I don't really hear being addressed by most socialists. And that is one of them is the 80-20 principle. Uh, the, the social scientist, uh, Wilfredo Pareto, had the idea that uh, in any kind of organization, about 20% of the people who in the organization do about 80% of the work necessary to sustain the organization and that 20% of the uh, members of an organization tend to dominate the organization. Uh, there's also Michael's insight about the iron law of oligarchy, that organizations uh, tend to become oligarchies the larger they become, and the bigger your organization, the, the more oligarchical it's going to be. Uh, there's also Mosca's insights about the circulation of elites, that in institutions, you see uh, people who are elites in one institution circulating it as elites in other institutions. Uh, there's also the role of culture, social norms, ideological superstructure, and, and the ways in which those shape economic life. I mean, Marx recognized that. Uh, Sorrell, some other socialists recognize that. Uh, there's also the question of regulatory capture. That's a major problem when you start talking about state-run industries and things like that. Um, you know, there are, there are critiques of, critics of that that go all the way back to the progressive era, like Charles Beard and, and thinkers like that. Uh, there's also the question of the role of the state in society. I mean, to me, the, the, and I agree with Weber's definition of the state. The state is an institution that exists to have a monopoly on violence, and, and the state 
as a bureaucracy that takes on institutional life of its own, that has its own institutional interest, aside from that of you know, whatever its official purpose may be. Uh, there's also the insights of public choice theory, which indicate that democracy you know, is an oligopoly of special interest groups, and we certainly see that in our public democracy uh, today. Uh, and even the most perfectly conceived democracy is still a tyranny of the majority, as, as John Stuart Mill pointed out. You know, I don't, I, I, you know, the idea of mass democracy is something that I, I would say I would approach with reservations because, uh, yeah, I don't know that mob rule is any better than elite rule. Uh, now we're getting into some other issues that that are beyond the question of socialism. Say elite rule is considerably worse than mob rule. What's very interesting about what, like, we, the what we might be able to do, this might be an opportunity because we, we did want to go into the Q&A pretty quick here. And so Todd hasn't gotten a chance to respond. Uh, Todd, if you have anything, this might be a great opportunity. Yeah. And then we'll jump into the Q&A. Yeah, sure. So, um, again, we don't have a lot of time left, but as far as the broader democratic decision making issues, any kind of innovation of, of this kind needs is going to entail a great amount of risk. And groups are generally risk averse, in, in part because it's not clear necessarily who is the one taking the risk and then who is the one that is going to bear the cost of the risk should the risk fail. And also who is going to benefit from making the decision if the risk were to be successful, which is why, again, uh, with venture capitalists, these are very small groups and with very clearly defined Who's risking what? Who's at fault if the risk fails? Now, does that mean there isn't some other way you could do it? Possibly. There's possibly some other way, but it's not clear how through a, uh, this more robust democratic decision-making process, you would see that. And the other problem is, at least as I see with socialists on the internet, a, a lot of times they'll, they'll sound like they all sort of have an underlying agreement on what socialism is, at least when they're talking to non-socialists. But then in private, they get into all these debates about what socialism actually is. And so then when they make these decisions, they're thinking, oh, well, everybody is agreeing with, with my definition of socialism. But then what we see uh, is that, no, they actually don't. And when it enters into a revolutionary phase, uh, you get into all, all of the, the circular firing squad of something like the Russian Revolution or the Mensheviks and the left SRs and the Bolsheviks say in, 19, in 1916, they're like, oh, yeah, we all have the same definition of socialism. But then as they, as they gain more and more power and they're not defining themselves against some other group, then it becomes clear that what they all thought was socialism was different and that they were actually, in fact, incompatible with one another. And so a lot of these problems converge and so then we have a difficulty of taking risky ventures. Now, if it, if it turns out that it is the case such that these works are risky and groups are risk averse, unless some intentional method is that I've not seen provided is produced, then we're not likely going to see such innovation. Um, and with regards to, Maybe the again, final the democratic, point. one more point. Okay, well then with regards to the artistic creativity, If we, let's compare like with like. So the end of Tsarist Russia, I mean, it's kaput, right? Right before the revolution, there's not much left. But from like 19, 1880 to like 1913, we have a galaxy of musicians, authors, novelists, playwrights. We still read Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Who do we read from Soviet Russia from 1970 and 80? 
there, there does seem to be a disconnect between the artistic creativity of even a late stage feudal society or maybe a proto-capitalist society and then a late stage socialist one. Thank you very much. We are going to jump into the questions. And so I want to remind you folks, by the way, if you did not know it, Modern Day Debate is on podcast. We're really excited about that. So pull out your phone, see if you can find us on your favorite podcast app. And want to let you know as well, if you're listening via podcast, we also put the speakers links in the description box for the podcast. So you can reach the speakers either in the description box of the podcast app or here on YouTube, where you can also find their links at the very top of the description, folks. So with that, we are going to jump into these questions. Want to say thanks, everybody, for your questions. We're going to move relatively quickly as we want to start a bit late. So we're going to try to move fast just to respect the speaker's time. So Sunflower says, Brenton, when basics are taken care of, people seek new heights and masteries. Not true for the majority of welfare recipients. Can we get a citation? Um, what, what do you mean not true for the majority of welfare? Uh, there, again, this is like established psychological fact. The, if somebody within a, who is like receiving welfare is not reaching new heights, the only way, how are you even calculating that? What do you know that they're doing with their time? They may not be uh, functioning within the market because they've been disincentivized to. Um, you know, but at the same time, they may be writing the next great novel. They may be the next Tolstoy. We just haven't noticed it yet. Or they may already be the next Tolstoy, but we'll never see their work because they were not within a, a class that is economically privileged enough to get themselves into a position to, pu to publish their novel. Gotcha. Thank you very much. And thank you for your question from Sphincter of Doom says, the question should not be whether socialism can innovate. The question should be whether capitalism or socialism fosters more innovation. That'd be an interesting debate if it wasn't the one we had tonight. But. A juicy one indeed. And thanks so much for your super chat coming in from Will Stewart right now. We'll ask Dr. Ben if, uh, let's see. Hold on a second. I, there it is. Okay. Thanks for your patience. Said, if socialism is anti-coercion slash anti-exploitation, how do you establish it if even one person refuses without using coercion? Uh, well, if the idea is that it's opposed to uh, all coercion, then yeah, uh, that would be a big problem that you can't have any uh, social or economic system where there's there's no coercion whatsoever. Uh, you would have uh, what Matt Brunig calls the grab what you can world where you wouldn't have any property rights and everybody could just uh, use everything at any time, you know, that uh, that somebody could, you know, who wanted to would be allowed to come into my home and use my toothbrush at will, uh, you know, like without, you know, because if you're not going to have some coercion about uh, distribution of resources, then you probably couldn't have an equity functioning society at all. I don't have any sort of absolutist anti-coercion position. I don't know when I advocated that. Uh, I, I think that uh, I would, however, like uh, the, uh, the decisions about the uses of resources that we coercively enforce, as you would have to in any possible society, uh, even an anarcho-capitalist one. I would, however, like those decisions uh, to be democratically decided. If you'll remember when I was talking about exploitation earlier, uh, the analogy I made was uh, to taxation without representation, which isn't a complaint about the existence of taxation. It's a complaint about the lack of representation. 
Gotcha. Anti-coercion tends to be like more an ANCAP and a right libertarian way of speaking. Left anarchists will also talk about it, like um, left libertarians. But I, I would say overall, Ben is 100% right. Even if you are coming from an anti-coercive uh, thing, it's not about a perfect solution. It's about building the least coercive society that is reasonably possible right now. Got you. And Andrew Olson, thanks for your question, said, if I'm a worker cog in a socialist my only goal uh is cog an abbreviation for something no no i think he's just saying it's like a little piece of a machine oh i see i gotcha so if i'm a worker cog in a socialist i think they mean uh, like country or society my only goal is to produce a quota and i'll quote get paid why then would anyone do extra work and endanger themselves in experiments for no gain, enjoying the convo? Well, I mean, I think this gets back to something that I have to say I found a little bit uh, frustrating this discussion, which is uh, that, all right, broadly speaking, socialism refers to any sort of proposal for social ownership of the means of production, but uh, we started out by giving a very specific model of what a social society could look like and asking, given that all of the elements of this model have been beta tested in the real world and all the elements of this model do in fact involve innovation in the real world, why is it that putting them together in this way wouldn't involve innovation? And I haven't, I haven't, I, I haven't heard that. Instead, what I keep hearing is going back to the question of, uh, of so you know of the uh, Soviet model, which which nobody here advocates, and this reference to quotas seems to be. Uh, you know, seems to be a reference to that. And, uh, and, and all I could say is that, you know, you, you got the wrong address, got to deliver that package elsewhere. Um, I would say to this one, this is yet another case of capitalists attacking socialism by, de by describing capitalism again. Like you basically described living in a, in a capitalist society and working within like, like a, a low wage job within a corporation where you have no motivation to do extra. You just need the paycheck. So I don't think this has anything to do with capitalism or innovation. I just think it's a rhetorical point that people love to trot out. Gotcha. And big thing, Bruce Wayne, thanks for your question, said Alaskan Americans own the rights to the minerals beneath their feet. They get a form of UBI and have for decades. Why not expand this to the rest of America? I think that would be for you, Keith and Todd. Well, I don't know that I would be opposed to expanding that to the rest of America. In yeah. fact, I know it was um, when um, Sarah Palin was running for uh, whatever she ran for, uh, vice president or whatever. I remember uh, joking with someone, um, a, a Republican friend who was talking about, you know, like he hoped the uh, Obama didn't win because he was a socialist. And I said, oh, no, Sarah Palin is probably more of a socialist than Obama. So you've got nothing to worry about. Um, but no, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with something like that per se. I don't know that I'd call that socialism. It's not some, something I find inherently objectionable. And it wouldn't add up to socialism by itself, but public ownership of the oil industry would be a nice start. They, they did that in, in Norway, actually, and their, their entire oil industry is, um, is nationalized, and then they weren't attacked by the United States because they're white. Um, and what wound up happening was, was that now everyone in Norway has the equivalent of like a $200,000 trust fund uh, through the, their uh public ownership of the oil. And as a result, they have one of the best standards of living in the world. So that's not necessarily socialism, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. 
Gotcha. And Colorado Biker Prepper says, for the panel, so I think for each side, what about the conflation between communism and socialism? I mean, I think both of those terms have been used in lots of different ways historically. Uh, that uh, what, you know, what somebody like, you know, uh, you know, Karl Marx uh, or Frederick Engels or for that matter, anarchists like Emma Goldman meant by uh, socialism, but meant by communism uh, is uh, is pretty close in a lot of ways to uh, to what I think bread to die mean by democratic socialism. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, lots of societies that had models that I wouldn't agree with at all have uh, have use the word socialism or use them interchangeably or whatever. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't get too hung up on labels. The question is, what do those labels signify? And if what's being signified is the Soviet model uh, of a uh, undemocratic command economy, then, uh, then all I can say is that's not what it, you know, that's, that's not what I advocate. If what's being signaled is uh, some form of workers control of the means of production, then yeah. That's uh, that. That's what I advocate. I don't really care what we call it. You know, workers control by any other name is just as sweet. Yeah. I, I love that you quoted Shakespeare there. Um, all right. So it's like I would consider myself a, a, a small C anarcho-communist, or at least that's what I'm most interested in. I'm also interested in aspects of democratic socialism. Um, I the, the distinction between socialism and communism to me is that socialism is worker ownership over the means of production within an economy that is decoupled from the laws of profit and loss. It's an economy that's not functioning so, uh, primarily to bring profits to a, an investor class. Um, communism is a classless, stateless, moneyless society in which the, uh, the, the means of existence are collectively owned by everyone within that society and uh, operated and controlled by the workers who physically possess them. Um, communism is an end stage ideal goal, which may or may not be possible, although I do think it's important to shoot for the moon, land in the stars, uh, whereas socialism is a means of organizing the economy. Uh, neither of these, you'll notice, have anything to do with what has been called, I will call it capital C communism, which is the sort of um, you know, authoritarian, Marx-Leninist, really Stalinist version that we saw at the USSR or in North Korea. And, you know, heck, I'd, I'd call North Korea not communist, but an absolute monarchy. Gotcha. Yeah, I'd, I'd, also, I'd also just real quickly say that the, uh, that uh, before I forget about this, that the division between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks had nothing to do with how to define socialism. It's that the Mensheviks thought that Russia needed a two-stage revolution and all it was ready for was a capitalist democratic one at that point, you know, not a socialist one. And, you know, and the Bolsheviks ultimately, you know, had a different position, not really relevant to anything. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to neurotically. You know, <laughs> gotcha. Thanks so much. And then white neat says the idea that we wouldn't work slash innovate unless it's for wealth is true in this political economy because of alienation. Why treat alienation like an objective feature of human nature. I, I, I know what he's talking about, but I want to give other people a chance to. to well, I think that's a question for Keith and I. Um, well, certainly in, in the case of alienation, you could argue that, that that is the case now, but I don't think one would have to assume. What I would object to is the idea that you have to assume alienation is the only reason why people wouldn't perform in this particular way we're talking about if they weren't paid in money 
one, Keith and I aren't arguing that they have to be paid any money. They could be compensated some other way. So, for example, the um, the Austrian Catholic monk Gregor Mendel invented modern genetics. I don't think he was paid to do that, but he had other motivations that were sufficient to motivate him to experiment with peas. But I do think we could. I, what I, again, what I would object to is that if you say that the only reason why people wouldn't work if they had everything taken care of was because they were alienated in the capitalist economy. I don't think that's the only condition under which they wouldn't do these things if they were pro- if they had all their material needs taken care of. For example, we can think of the, the spoiled aristocratic child who never has to worry about anything in his life, but because of that, he just has this sort of hedonistic, careless attitude towards life because he's never had to work. So, and, and in his case, it's not because he's alienated from his labor by capitalism. One could argue it's precisely because he's been privileged in that way, that he's this spoiled aristocratic kid. Um, is there anything you'd like to add to that, Keith? Well, the problem I have with that question is that I think it's rooted in a problem that I pointed out in my introduction, which is economic determinism. I think that when it comes to the question of whether somebody's motivated to work, produce, or innovate, or whatever, there's uh, there's also uh, the issue of the individual's personality structure and all of the different things that make that what it is. And, that, and economic conditions are only one of many aspects of that. Uh, I, I know people that I have no doubt that if you gave them, say, a UBI of you know $50,000 a year, they would do absolutely nothing. They sit in front of the TV and smoke pot for the rest of their life. Um, I know other people that you could give them a million dollars a year uh, as a UBI, and they would still be out busting ass, working, doing something, inventing this or being an entrepreneur or whatever, uh, or, or, or some kind of work. Uh, maybe it wouldn't even be profit-generating work. It would be you know, civic work or something like that. Uh, they would be doing that. Uh, so I, the issue there, I think, gets more into issues of personality structure psychological makeup as much as economic systems. Not that to say that economic systems don't intersect with individual personalities, but it's a lot more complicated than what the question would seem to suggest. You got it. Thanks so much. And Will Stewart, thanks for your question. Forgive me, guys. It's uh, I didn't get a great night of sleep last night. Did I already ask this one that, Dr. Ben, what is your definition of democracy? In a pure democracy, how do you safeguard the majority from exploiting the minority? Yeah, so I think my definition of democracy would be the same as everybody else's, uh, you know, rule uh, by the majority. Now, uh, if uh, if you're worried about having uh, the uh, minority rights being trampled on in a uh, in a pure democracy, that might give you a reason to uh, to want an impure democracy, you know, with some constitutional protection for minority rights. But I don't see how it gives you a reason to not want democracy, or crucially, how it gives you a reason to not want democracy extended into the sphere where most adults have to spend the best eight hours of every five days a week and it's only eight hours because the results of past worker struggles you got it I, I, if i could just add a little ps onto this because i was starting to talk about this earlier um i find oftentimes in critiques of democracy they'll say stuff like uh you know democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting about what's for dinner and they'll they'll put these huge fears of like mob rule. The fact is, is that when you are making a decision democratically, 
you can have a tiny group of people make that decision and you can have a large group of people make that decision and maybe it'll be a great decision. Maybe people will get screwed over by it. But if it's a large group of people making that decision, you have a much better chance of being part of that large group and not getting screwed over than if there's a small group. Essentially to favor elite democracy over direct democracy or, or more universal forms of democracy is essentially just the wish for a benevolent dictatorship to be extended. It, it, it's, it's inherently anti-democratic. So I, I think what people really need to realize when someone's stoking those fears is why are they stoking those fears? And the fact is they're doing it to make you afraid of your own power. Everyone is an individual and every individual is part uh, of a collective. There isn't actually a battle to, to be waged there. You got it. And thanks, Christopher Hatch. Appreciate your question. And also your spelling of subsidies. That's uh, is really clever. So they asked, are wage subsidies like food stamps socialist? No. Yeah, no. Gotcha. Everybody's on the same page, it sounds like. And then, thanks for your question. This one coming in from, I think we had asked, yep, got that. Brad Morberg, thanks for your question, said, I like the idea of central planning, but how can we make sure social liberties are protected under a government that has the power of central planning? We can. Uh, I mean, I, again, I, I, that, that, that just sounds like the democracy question worded, uh, worded slightly differently. Uh, and even if you do have, um, you know, so I think that uh, I think that the idea that uh, the that having the economy be in the hands of private owners is some sort of safeguard uh, against uh, trampling of liberties is just kind of historically illiterate, because whereas it's true that there are uh, authoritarian countries that have had centrally planned economies, that have trampled over those. It's also true that there have been authoritarian countries that have had regular capitalist economies that have had just as much uh, trampling uh, of those uh, of those liberties, or much more so. Uh, you know, when, when you talk about like Hitler and Suharto and people like that, uh, you know, which uh, which again happened in societies that uh, where most of the economy uh, was in the hands of regular capitalist companies. Uh, so I'd say that if that's your plan for safeguarding, you know, social liberties is to keep the economy private, I think you need a better plan. Yeah, I'd say that there is something of a there is some sort of a steel man that I can pull out of this in that it is generally a bad idea to centralize uh, power and control of, of like over the entire economy and lots of factors of society in the hands of just a few people, because it's easier to get a idiot in that position. It's easier to get a tyrant in that position. And it's easier to just make a mistake and cause more problems. We want uh, power to be diffused as much as possible because then there's more fail safes that will prevent uh, those kinds of problems. Uh, and we see in countries with more democracy, they tend to be a little bit more robust and able to handle um, economic crises and also political crises because of that state of diffused power. What I'm going to say is, is that with regard to capitalism and socialism, I think socialism will diffuse the power more rather than more greatly concentrated in the form of the state. You got it. And this one fresh in from Will Stewart. Appreciate it. Said Brenton is 6 million years of human evolution, not empirical evidence of that fear. Of what fear? 
Yeah, I was wondering that. I was hoping you'd know. Okay, let me try. I, I think I, he might be referring to something I said in my uh, opening statement uh, where I talked about um, like the fear that people will, uh, if we're if we're not whipped into shape, if we're not forced to produce, will either be conquered or will stagnate. And I would say human evolution is the reason why that won't happen. I mean, capitalists talk all the time about us having infinite wants and infinite needs. And the Buddhists know this, that desire is something that you you can't conquer by gaining things, either by accomplishments or by physical acts or, or pulling power to yourself. As soon as you have what you want, you want something else. So the, the fact is, is that human psychology does not allow us to stagnate. And it's one of the things that separates us from the animals. The, the problem here is that people, he's thinking of humans as if we are animals. Um, because I'm guessing that the propaganda he's ingested has told him that the lower classes are animals and will behave as animals as opposed to thinking rational humans uh, just just uh, just as a as a quick addendum I, I won't go off the big thing about this because i know we have limited very little time left but uh the i it seems like a lot of the questions are asking some sort of like uh are we sort of orbited around human nature objections to socialism which is an interesting enough topic that we should do a different debate just about that gotcha and last one for the night thanks Ferran Salas, who says Watch me dip, watch me nay nay, watch me dip, dip, James. Is that the new, like, cool song, Brenton? Is that, okay. Uh, I'm nearly 40, so I don't know, but um, (laughs) I know dip is cool now, and the whip and nay nay is an older song that that was cool, uh, like, what, 10 years ago? Thank you for teaching me that. (laughs) But they said, thanks for all you do. So I couldn't thank the speakers more. It's been a true pleasure. So we really do appreciate them, folks. They're linked in the description so that you can hear plenty more from our guests or read plenty more either as we really do appreciate them. And so we want to say one last final thank you to our guests. And I will be back with a post credit scene in just a moment to let you know about upcoming debates. Folks, we are excited about those. And so one last thank you, though, everybody, for your questions and also to our speakers. It's been a true pleasure to have you, Ben, Brenton, Keith, and Todd. Thanks, James. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. I'll be back in just a moment with that post credit scene. Stick around. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.